can open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. This morning we will begin chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we're not going to go through a synopsis of where we've been in chapter 15, although we will refer to it later at a couple of points towards the end of the message today. But I want to look together at the first four verses of John chapter 16 and read them with you and then pray and begin. And so if you're able, please stand with me to read John chapter 16 verses 1 through 4 together. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's go together once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh God, I thank You for this day. I thank You again for this time to look into Your Word. Oh God, I pray that you would not leave us alone in this task, that you would not leave me alone. Oh God, we want to know your power and presence. Father, remind us that we've not only gathered to grow in our intellect or understanding, but to meet with, commune with and worship our God. Oh Lord, you are a God who's been pleased to reveal yourself as one who relates with his people and speaks to them, and acts upon them. Father, I pray that would be our portion. O Lord, I ask that You would guard me from error, that You would keep me from saying wrong things. But, O God, that You would speak through me, that You would use my mouth as You would see fit. And, Lord, that we would all forget about me and only know You. Father, we ask that you would glorify your great name in this time as you continue to lead us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin in verse 1 of John 16 and see this. Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has said something to us or said something to the disciples concerning what He's telling them. There have been a number of times, and I suppose I could have made this point at several places along the way. And maybe I have made this point at a few places along the way, but nevertheless, we need to consider it again and think about this. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you. My question at the beginning is, are we aware of the fact that God is speaking to us? Is God speaking to us, not just a man? Are we gathered? Even do we come together on Sundays just to listen to one person, one human being talk? And I I believe there are probably even a number of people who when they come together at a church service, they have the idea that they've come to hear a man talk about God, to tell them true things about God. 
And that is certainly part of what we do. But I believe one of the greatest tragedies today in the world, in the church, the modern church, even among those who are proclaiming truth, they're proclaiming orthodoxy, they've got a true biblical gospel. One of the greatest tragedies is that we no longer expect God himself to speak. We don't expect God himself to act. And I argue and ask the question, is it any surprise in lot of that, that the world around us is losing interest in Christianity? Now, don't misunderstand. There are an awful lot of people, droves of people who will go and fill up Joel Osteen's church. They'll go to someone who will tell them if they sow a seed of financial faith, they can have physical healing. They can have temporal blessing. They can grow their wealth and prosperity. Oh, yeah, people will go. The unbelieving world will go there. But it does seem to me that many people have been disillusioned with religion in general. Have you noticed this? I see this regularly. People at one time, historically, you can find people, lost people would gather at a church to hear what was being proclaimed. You know why that is? There was a sense of authority in the communication of God's word. People would go to hear what was being said, even unbelievers and deists like Ben Franklin go and listen to the gospel. Why? Someone actually asked him that one time. I believe he was going maybe to hear George Whitfield or something. And they asked him, you don't believe what he's saying. Why are you going to listen to him? And his response was, well, he believes it. And his belief and conviction and understanding of God and God's authority and even a sense of the presence of God was so incredible that lost people would go and see what's this all about. And you see that pattern in the scriptures as well. But I'm suggesting to you, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you. I'm really wanting to focus on this reality of God himself speaking and not just us considering some things that may or may not be true together. I believe there's an interesting trend among preachers today in dealing with issues around politics. And this is related to this point. I hope you'll come to see that. But whether a liberal person or a conservative person, there are many preachers who seem to think that the best way to draw people to the church, to get people to come in, is to deal with either political or social convictions. Have you noticed that trend? Do you see people that are always wanting to talk about relevant cultural issues in society and political issues? Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, I do believe that we slander Christ when we think we're to draw the people by something else but the preaching of Christ crucified. And yet you see so many people who will grab a hold of the most hot button issue that there is and they'll, they'll speak all about it from a pulpit somewhere. And I believe that actually feeds into why so many people are disillusioned with religion. You know why it is? It's because they can get the exact same thing from the pulpit on a Sunday that they're going to get watching either CNN or Fox, depending on their political persuasion. That people are avoiding and not likely to come to a church because they're going to hear the same thing they can hear from their living room at home. People talking about theories and ideas. And where's the sense of God himself speaking with authority? The only difference is, is that the preacher, if he's touting my political convictions, then I can have some moral superiority to people who disagree with me. I can feel like, well, I'm more moral because the preacher agrees with me about this. And you may be wondering, what does that have to do with Jesus saying, I have said all these things to you? Here's the point that people seem to have forgotten, by and large, 
that the entire foundation of Christianity is rooted in the fact that God himself has spoken. Just consider some of these things with me by way somewhat of introduction from Genesis 1:28. We read and God blessed them right after he's created man in his image. He says that God says and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's what's staggering about this. The first thing we see God doing after creating man, it says, and God said to them, God created man for relationship and that relationship comes through his communication to them. At the very beginning of creation, God is speaking to man. He's communicating to him. And if you just look forward to Genesis chapter six, we see the pattern continues, the pattern repeating Genesis six. God comes similarly to Noah. Obviously, this is after the fall, after Adam and Eve sin and they're cast out of the garden and their entire line and posterity is born in sin from that point forward. Then we see in Genesis six, beginning in verse nine, this. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. There's that relation. There's that uh, communing with God. He's walking with God. It says, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here's the point that not only did God relate with Adam and Eve and speak with them after creating them. We see with Noah, God comes to him. He's walking with Noah as a relationship with Noah. And just as an aside, don't be distracted from that statement that says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. And as a matter of fact, the scriptures go on to prove that. And just quickly, I'll tell you this. God says before the flood that every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually in this context. After God floods the earth, all that's left is Noah and his family. God promises I'll never again flood the earth because of you. And then he gives this statement for man's heart is evil from his youth. Still the same condition, even after all those bad people are wiped out and destroyed in the flood. And Noah proves that by getting drunk immediately after that. Noah is not a righteous person. And Noah was headed for destruction along with the rest of mankind. You realize this, if God had not come to him and spoken to him, Noah would have been destroyed along with everybody else. So what distinguishes Noah's life? Why does Noah's life, his family, why is there a future of people come from this man Noah? What's the explanation? Is that God intervened. God acted. God spoke. God spoke to him directly. And if you just butt flip forward a little bit, I just want to establish this point as clear as we can in your mind from Genesis chapter 12. Here we have in Genesis 12, the first couple of verses we read. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
Same exact thing. God coming to Abram and calling him to go forth. Now you realize this figure, Abram, who would be called eventually Abraham, is really the the starting point when you trace back and look at the nation of Israel, God's people. And other than God doing this, if God does not come to Abram and say, I've got something, I'm going to send you out, I'm going to intervene in your life. Apart from God doing that in Abraham's life, you know what? Before this, Abraham was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans in Canaan. Now think about this. God raises up His people and then eventually from Moses and then on to Joshua, they go into Canaan. And what do they do with all the people dwelling there? Wipe them out. God establishes Himself. If God does not do this and call Abram out, all of Abram, and if he had any children, if he had any other children outside of the miraculous one that God gave him through Sarah with Isaac, if he had any other line after him, they would have been wiped out and destroyed in Canaan. God calls him out. The difference is God spoke to him. God impacted his life this way. God acted. And you know, I could take up your entire morning going through the Old Testament and you see that same pattern over and over and over again. The difference is always, it always comes down to this, God speaking. Through the law, through the prophets, all the way up to the New Testament. And of course we read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. That's the one who's speaking to us in John 16 who says, I have said all these things to you. I've spoken to you. And these things I'm saying are supposed to impact your soul. That's what Jesus is. He speaks to us. That pattern, this pattern I'm arguing for is most clearly seen in the statement found at the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now here's the connection and where I started. We gather in a place like this to hear from God. To hear from the God who acts and speaks to His people. Not to just kick around ideas about what we think might be the best thing in place in a society. Or what we think might be good or might be true or might be right. I contend with you that there's no place for subjectivity in the proclamation of truth. Truth is true because it comes from God. And we need God to continue speaking in this way through His Son. And so I'm sure there's probably someone sitting there thinking, well, that's a dangerous message, brother. You're going to have people sitting around wanting to hear little voices in their head and and have some, some kind of authority for their life and what they're imagining. Well, listen to what Jesus says. This is what I'm calling for. Jesus, this Son of God, through whom God now speaks and has spoken, this is what He has to say about God's communication. Let me ask it this way. How involved is God in the communication of His Word to His people? Whenever a man stands up and preaches, is it just me standing before you telling you true things about God that He said a long time ago? Or is God involved in the proclamation now, here to you? How personal is it? Jesus says this way in an argument with some Pharisees one day in Matthew 22. He says, Have you not read what was said to you by God. 
You hear what Jesus is saying? God, even when these things were written down, God was speaking and it's personally applied to these people. Have you not read what God said to you? Of course, we could fast forward and look at Paul's attitude towards it in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Paul writes and says, Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see the point I'm making here. Do you come into a place like this with expectation of God doing more than just having words set before you? Paul says this message that we proclaim, this gospel, it wasn't just in word. There was something more to it. And the explanation for what made it more was not found in Paul. It's the Holy Spirit and power and full conviction. There's something unique about a proclamation that is accompanied by the power of God Himself and the presence of God Himself. And I wonder, I believe it's a, a, a needful thing for all of us to be reminded of the fact that when we come together, we ought to come with excitement, with anticipation of meeting with God, that God Himself would speak His Word to us so that when we see Jesus saying to His disciples, I have said these things to you, that we're able to receive it as He's saying it to us. And not me telling you that Jesus said this, He Himself telling you that He's talking to you. That it is personally applied. That's the point I'm driving at. Do we believe God's promise when He says He will be with us when we gather together? That our longings collectively as a church body, that our longings would transcend a mere consideration of truth into a desperate need of communing with our God. And I ask, do we believe His promise when He says He will be present when we gather? And not only do we believe it, not only do we sit here together saying, well, God said He would be with us when we gathered, and so we know that He is, whether we sense it or not. That's true. And yet, are we aware of the presence of God in such a way that we can say what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that there was the Holy Spirit Power and full conviction. In light of those thoughts in this first statement where he says, I have said all these things to you. Do we have a framework of our minds to be able to say Jesus is not talking about something that's unrelated to me? He's saying something that's meant to be applied to me here when he says, I have said all these things to you. What is the explicit purpose of that for us today? What is the reason for Jesus saying these things to his disciples and then now to us? The first thing we see is to keep you from falling away, to keep you from falling away. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that it's possible for you to fall away from Christ? Can you fall away? What is the source of your encouragement and security? How do you know that one day you're not going to wake up, walk away from this place and never come back? How do you know that you're not going to be cast out and not know the presence of God? How do you know that? I ask it in this way because I believe there are two primary errors that people make when they look at a verse like this. Jesus says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. The first error that people make is they completely ignore this. They completely ignore verses like this is the first problem and they don't apply them to themselves at all. 
They basically assume that, well, I believe and I know that I can't lose my salvation, so I shouldn't be concerned with any verses that suggest I might could fall away. The other error is to begin to think that what's going to keep you from falling away is going to be anything you do. Anything that's left for you to accomplish or satisfy or complete. Those are the two errors and they're, they're contrasted by one another. And so I ask, in light of those two potential errors, let me ask you, be honest. It will not do you any good to hear these things and not be honest with yourself about them. Have you ever felt like you were at the brink of leaving Christianity, leaving the faith? You ever gotten to the end of yourself and it just feels like hopeless? I don't desire God. I don't know God. I wonder if even there's somebody here today that the only reason you're sitting here now is because you're maybe concerned what people would think if you weren't. What other Christian people would think if you did walk away. These are realities that, that people surely face. Desperation. You see it throughout those who wrote Scripture, the psalmists at times. You see it in different ones in the New Testament. A hopelessness and despair in this feeling of not being connected to God in the way that you know you want to be. And Jesus says... To us today, I've said these things to keep you from falling away. Is it even possible for a Christian to fall away? Is it possible? And without being too quick to answer that, I know what our theological statement of faith says. And I know what we heard in the other room this morning about the reality of Christ upholding His own. I'm asking you in light of Jesus' words to sit under this for just a minute. And if you do come to the conclusion from our thoughts today that you cannot fall away, that you cannot be separated from Christ, on what basis, on what grounds, how is it that you're not going to fall away if you don't? A few scriptures to consider on the subject. Hebrews 3.12, listen. He says, take care, brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Author of the Hebrews is writing to people when he considers them brothers. These aren't his immediate family members. When he says brothers, he's assuming that they're Christian people. And he says, take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God give you one example of this, and I won't use Judas because we know he fell away in accordance with the Scriptures that were prophesied about him falling away. That was the purpose and plan from the beginning. Let's look at somebody the Scripture speaks highly of in one regard who fell away. Colossians 4.14 says this. Paul writes and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. As does Demas. So here we have Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture through Paul, and Paul makes reference to this Demas as one who's greeting the Christians at Colossae. And again in Philemon 1.24, and you have this remark, this greeting, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now get this in your mind. Demas was a fellow, fellow worker. He was one who was considered a brother, a beloved brother. 
And then yet Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, the first half of the verse, he says to Timothy, for Demas, same God, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's a little bit staggering, isn't it? That we hear one who in another context is called this fellow worker, this partner in the faith, partner in the gospel He's in love with this present world and has deserted me. Does that connect in your soul a little bit whenever you read, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, love for this present world? This is a genuine and sincere warning that we need to sit under for a moment without dismissing. And I ask the question, how could those who the author to the Hebrews considered to be brothers How could they fall away? How could Demas fall away? How might you fall away? I said this many months ago, and I stand by it, and I'm going to repeat it to you again. Just because you believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean that you yourself will persevere. Do you follow my meaning? It's true. Christ will keep all of His to the end. And just because you think that's true or agree with that statement doesn't mean you're one of His. It doesn't mean you've been born again. The truth is set in front of us here and the warnings are meant to be taken seriously. Here's the explanation of how someone falls away. Someone who can be as entrenched in ministry and labor unto God as anybody you've ever known. And we can I could give you names of people currently, even in the past number of years that had large platforms only to fall completely away. How do you know that you won't? How do you know that you are secure in the faith? Jesus is telling us, He's writing, He said these things to them that they not fall away. People fall away because of what John tells us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, He says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The answer is those who fall away and abandon the faith have never been born again. They've never been truly united to Jesus Christ. And maybe you'll forgive me for what I did. I took that scripture from Hebrews 3.12. You know, brothers, beware lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, I kind of plucked that handily right out of the context, didn't I? And it's so helpful if we'll just sometimes you'll hear someone saying something. And if you'll just pause and go and read the surrounding verses, it'll clear up real quick. And you can tell the difference between false teaching that way. So I'll ask you, look with me at Hebrews three. We've got the statement. We've taken it as a sincere warning. Now, let's look at the context. Hebrews, let's look together in chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see what he's saying? If someone, they walk away, they fall away from the living God because of sin, because of an unbelieving heart, why do they do it? Because they have not come to share in Christ. I don't believe the meaning could be any plainer in the text. This is the warning that if someone's not come to share in Christ, they're going to fall away. But if, for we have come to share in Christ, how do you know if you've come to share in Christ? Truly, if indeed you hold your original confidence firm to the end. I want to show you something very interesting in light of our text today. Jesus tells us, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. There's an emphasis on the things He said. His Word to you. Now listen, there's this warning against falling away, this reminder that those who are in Christ are those who will endure to the end. Look at verse 15 of Hebrews 3. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do you see the significance of that statement in light of our thoughts today? The thing that keeps you, that causes you to endure to the end is His voice. It's like Jesus says in John 10, My sheep, they hear My voice and I know them and they're following Me. They're going to follow Me if they're hearing His voice, His Word. Are you hearing His Word from Him? Not just from Me, but from Him. That's the question. If anybody ever tries to tell you, and there are people, there are people who genuinely believe that you can be united to Christ, born again by the Spirit of God, and then someday be separated from Christ. There are people who will tell you that. I'm going to tell you this. If anyone ever tries to tell you that you can be separated from Christ, including yourself, if you, even hearing this now, are under conviction and you're one who's trusted in Christ and you're sitting there thinking, well, maybe I, I'm not really accepted or loved by Him, even yourself, if anyone tells you that you can be separated from Christ, they're imitating Satan. I mentioned this as well already today. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And I contend with you that the Spirit of Christ in you will never try to convince you that you can be separated from Him. If you have the Spirit of Christ, He's not going to be telling you that it's possible for you to be separated from Christ. He won't do it. He's actually the one within you that you're crying, Abba, Father, by. And you're not, you're, not, you're not living in slavery or fear. But you know you've been adopted. That's the argument of Romans 8. If you have a stirring within you that tells you that you're in jeopardy of losing Christ. There's only two options. Really one, ultimately. It's not the Spirit of God or you have not been born again. That's the only two options there are. You cannot fall away if you are in Him. That's what I'm telling you. The question is, have you been united to Christ? What authority do I have for saying? Jesus says to His disciples, I'm saying these things to keep you from falling away. What authority do I have for telling you that you cannot fall away if you're one of His? Well, just look back brief, briefly with me to Jesus' own words from John chapter 6. John 6, Jesus tells us. First look with me at verse 37 and following. 
Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. First objection to a Christian falling away, Jesus won't cast them out. Have you ever thought to yourself that because of your sin and failure, what if Jesus stops loving me? What if He casts me out? I submit to you, He never will. He said, I will never cast you out. Verse 30, 38, we go on and it says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, these things go together. If you're one of Christ, who's been given to Him by the Father, not only is He not going to cast you out, He's not going to lose you to anything else. And furthermore, He's so confident in the fact that He won't lose you that He guarantees that you will be raised up on the last day. You see, this is the security of those who are trusting in Christ. And then He goes on and He says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus guarantees to raise up all who are his. One more primary scripture to look at on the matter. Look with me at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. You will probably recognize the scriptures here. We sing this song periodically. Beginning in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I'm going to step out on a limb here and suggest to you that if anybody had authority to talk about the certainty of you not losing your salvation, it's Peter. You remember what happened, right? Jesus is talking with Peter, actually confronting Peter's arrogance, says you're going to deny me. And he goes on to say, Peter, Satan has sought to sift you as wheat. You're going to deny me. You're going to fail miserably. And Jesus tells him this, but I've prayed for you that your faith not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen the brothers. And Peter's writing to us from that experience. The very one who denied Christ says God is able to keep you. He kept me in my own denial of Christ. But Jesus prayed for me. And we have the same intercession that Peter had. If you're a Christian, you can know that you will not be lost if it is Jesus who is keeping you. He can guarantee this for his own. Now we ask, Jesus is guaranteed he's not losing anyone. Why does he say that he's spoken these things to keep them from falling away? Why do I emphasize the significance of Christ's word and you personally, individually receiving and hearing his word from him? Why? Well, look with me back at Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven. See the significance of this in relationship to this falling away. Matthew 7, begin reading in verse 24. Everyone then 
who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What is the rock in this illustration here, in this story, this parable Jesus is giving here? What is the rock? He says, for everyone who hears these words of mine, these words of Christ, the rock that keeps the house from falling in the storm is the words of Christ. That's the rock. And that's the point. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that you not fall away. If you don't fall away, it's his word that keeps you from falling away. And here's the point. It is Jesus Christ alone who preserves his people. And one of the ways he preserves them is according to his word. That is the rock beneath your feet. And it's the anchor for your soul in adversity. Jesus word. We don't persevere. We don't remain. We don't keep from falling away according to our own labors and efforts. But by trusting the words of Christ and what He has accomplished for us. A striking, another illustration of this is found in Hebrews 11. Look with me at Hebrews 11 just for a moment. Verses 17-19. through See the connection in these things. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see the connection in this? Can you imagine any greater adversity than the idea of sacrificing a child, losing a child? How devastating. And some of you in the room right now know exactly the pain that that brings. This is what Abraham's facing. And what's the explanation Hebrews gives us for why he was committed to do what God told him to do? This is what he says. He believed what God had said to him. He believed what God said. God had told him, it's through Isaac your offspring's going to be named. And so the one who's able to do all that he promises, God's word, that's what persuaded. That's the context. That's why Abraham persevered. It's because he believed what God had said. It's believing God's promises is the foundation for all endurance. In our context today, what is it? It's going to persuade these disciples to fall away from Christ. I'm saying adversity. Jesus is saying these things I'm telling you are meant to keep you when you face the rough waters, guys. But what are the rough waters in our context? Verse two, it says they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever whenever whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Be put out of the synagogues. That's the first thing that might cause them to fall away if they weren't depending and trusting and leaning on His Word. Y'all remember when we studied through John chapter 9, the blind man, do you remember his parents and the state they were in? The sermon, I believe, was called Riding the Fence. 
And you have this blind, formerly blind man. Jesus has healed him. He's brought before the religious council. And they're asking him. They're interrogating him. And they bring the parents in to verify he really was born blind. And they say, yeah, he was. Then they ask the parents about this blind man and say, well, what about Jesus? Tell us about Jesus. And they're unwilling to talk about Jesus. John 9.22 says this, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, He was to be put out of the synagogue. Jesus tells His disciples, the persecution that you're going to face, that's going to tempt you to abandon Me, is to be ostracized by the religious community around them. Now, do you guys suppose that that could ever happen to us today? Can you ever imagine a world in which religious people, even in this community, would have not, not want to have anything to do with us because of positions that we hold to concerning truth, concerning Jesus? Well, many of you don't have to imagine. You've already experienced that. You know people who, when they think of you and your association to this church, have negative thoughts in their mind. And many of them probably are willing to tell you what they think. Here's the thing. That there are those around us who might speak evil of us or be intolerant of us if we maintain a commitment to biblical truth. Now keep in mind that if we face severe persecution, if that does come, and I believe it's likely that it will, if we face that, the news headlines are not going to read when they describe your imprisonment or persecution. They're not going to say, faithful Christian is unwilling to waver from the truth. That's not what the headlines are going to say. It's going to say radical extremist. It's going to say intolerant, not real Christianity, fake Christian. That's what the headlines are going to say of you. That's what they said of these people in this day that suffered this way. In light of that, how tempting is it? How tempting would it be for you and I to ignore heresies and false gospels of other religions, even religions that might use the name Jesus, in order to preserve our standing amongst men. Jesus says the fire that you're going to face, guys, that you're going to need a rock beneath your feet to get through, is suffering at the hand of other religious people put out of the synagogues. The next thing He says is, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So not only is there this threat of being opposed, but of being eliminated completely in the name of God. Never forget this. Though it was the Romans who carried out the act of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it was religious people who instigated it in the name of God. They said this Jesus is a blasphemer. That's why they crucified Him. And it was religious folks who did it. Just to see the fulfillment of this, the primary fulfillment of what Jesus is saying, we can see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, if you'll look with me. Jesus says that people are going to kill you in the name of God. That's what He's telling them. Acts chapter 6. Listen to this beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. See what's going on? Stephen's going out proclaiming truth. He comes under the attack of these kinds of people. Now the thought, we're going to skip forward to Acts 7. Begin looking again with me at Acts 7 and verse 51. This is the culmination of all of this. Stephen, after proclaiming this glorious sermon about how all the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ and how they're wrong for rejecting Him, we get to verse 51. He says, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The death of one of these, Jesus says, hey, they're going to kill you in the name of God. They're going to persecute you in the name of religion. That's exactly what's happening here. And we see this reference to this Saul at the end of chapter 7 and right into chapter 8, you can read this, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lament over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. The next time we see Saul, this same Saul is in chapter 9 doing the same thing in the name of God. Chapter 9, verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and ask him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, that pattern did not end with the apostles and the disciples in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Just It didn't change. You see, Saul, this mighty man who's opposed to Christ, he's gloriously converted in the next coming verses of Acts chapter 9. He comes to see Christ truly, Okay, now the great opposition to God is ended because Saul was converted, right? No, the same man, Saul, Paul, the apostle, is one of many, a number who 
was martyred, killed, had his head cut off for Christ. And Christians have been executed and martyred throughout the ages. And yet as they die, as they're burned alive, there's reports of them singing praises to God. Why? What could cause that? It's not because of any great confidence in themselves, but because of their desperate trust in the Word of God. In the Word of God. I'll give you one example of someone who actually wasn't martyred, but faced severe persecution. You might have heard of him. His name is Martin Luther. This was his position, the source of his confidence against this level of of religious persecution. This is what he said when he took his stand. He says, since your most serene majesty and your lordships require of me a simple, clear and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther. Facing opposition. What's his confidence? Conscience that's been captivated by the word of God. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that you will not fall away when opposition comes. It's the word of Christ that buoys you and holds you up in the face of these things. That's what we're being told. That's been the foundation throughout the ages. The point at which the lost world is prepared to silence, persecute and kill Christians is when they hold up the word of God as the only authority and they call men and women to be reconciled to the God of the word. Now, remember, all of this suffering Jesus is telling them is going to happen. It's coming in the context of him telling them you're going to be my witnesses. You understand That if we're faithful in telling others the truth, not just about Jesus, but the truth, the Jesus of this book, there's going to be hatred and hostility unless God does something. And I submit to you, we should be less concerned about not facing opposition and hostility in the world, but recognizing it's going to happen and that driving us to desperation and dependence that we would have the witness of this helper that we heard about in the last message. Jesus says, the next part in verse 3, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Here again, Jesus is reiterating that the reason for the hostility is that the lost world is at enmity with God. And you know, there's not really much clearer evidence of being hostile to God than if you're hostile towards God's people. If you know someone who tells you they love God and they're serving God and they hate his word and they hate his people, they're lying. They're not telling the truth. And I've even known people, some of which I would be prepared to say, I'm not convinced they haven't fallen away after a season of even passion and excitement about Jesus. And the two things that are so evident in them right now is a hostility towards the scriptures and a hostility towards God's people who hold up these Scriptures as authoritative. I could name names, but I won't do that. And not on my authority, John says in 1 John 2.9, whoever says he's in the light 
and hates his brother is still in darkness. Jesus is telling them their hatred for you and all that they're going to do is because they're in darkness. They don't know the father and they don't know me. But on the flip side of that, if you know and love God, if you know and love Jesus Christ, you're going to love his people and his word. And our last verse today in verse four, Jesus says, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. We end today really right where we began. In order to persevere, we must be convinced of the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. You follow me? You are not going to persevere if when you face difficulty, you remember, I remember Dexter said something one time in a sermon that was really good. That's not going to make you persevere. You've got to be convinced in your soul, as Martin Luther was, that God said this. My conscience is captive to Jesus Christ. What he said. And not only that, that he's given me a hope that endures and goes beyond even suffering now. That you can say with Stephen, into your hands, I, I submit myself and my spirit, Lord. You are going to hold me up. That's the thing. It's his word that gives us that kind of confidence. Our hope in any difficulty must be His promises and His power to deliver all that He's promised. I say this. Jesus Christ has declared all of His people to be clean. It's it's been declared by Christ on what basis? On the basis of His own cross and His resurrection. When the scripture says that he burst asunder those bands of death, that there's this this death that was holding him, but it couldn't hold him down. When he came up from the grave, he's crying out with a loud voice. All of my people are justified forever. That's what his resurrection tells us. He accomplished it truly and fully. This Jesus, it's confidence in his word and what he said and his ability to do what he said. That's the basis for our trust and confidence in Him through difficulties. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Jesus alone reconciles us to God. I'm telling you, we as His people need to hear these things from Him. I have no greater burden or prayer every time I step into this pulpit than that God Himself would speak. And anyone who's ever preached can tell you there's no greater horror than being in this pulpit and feeling like you're alone. Like it's left to me to convince you of these things apart from the living God to remember these things that God alone would be glorified in this. Final charge is will you fall away? Here's my question. Can Jesus Christ fall away? That's your question. Can Jesus be separated from the love of God? Can Jesus Christ ever be defeated or undone or destroyed? Can his work ever be made null and void? Can you ever look at Jesus and say, what you have done is not enough? The answer is no. We say he's the victorious Christ. That he did conquer and defeat all the, the devil in the world and even the sin and the wrath of God that you deserved. He dealt with it all fully. I heard someone say recently, 
in a little clip, a preacher, he said this, anytime you have a, a thought in your mind about whether or not God loves you, and I'm paraphrasing him surely, but here was the point. He said this, the Father accepts Christ's work. God the Father has accepted the work Jesus did. You can too. Can you believe that Jesus can hold you up? That His words will be the rock that you endure upon? Well, I pray that you do. And if you have not come to know Jesus this way, everything in this book is crying to you now. Come to Jesus Christ and live. And as the Christian, the Scripture is telling you, continue coming to the fountain of life. Continue coming to the One who has these words of eternal life. And it is His words in you that will cause you to endure to the end. I pray these things would stay with us. Bow with me and we'll be closed now in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord God, I praise You. I thank You for Your Son. I thank You for these words that You've given to us, that You are the living God and that You act. Thank You, O God, that You act. Thank You that You've spoken. Father, I pray that You would continue to do what You've promised, that You would apply this very Word to our hearts, that we may endure to the end. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.